0: Hey, Gus, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing?
1: Going very well. Thanks for having me in.
0: So would you be able to tell our listeners who you are, a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Happy to introduce myself. So um, Gus Kennedy, I came from a consultancy background. I worked for Bain & Co, US Management Consultancy in the city. And um, I was approached by none other than my mother, who is a GP. And she said, look, the software that we are using, is just awful i just cannot continue to run my practice operating in this way and um, that was in 2017 she was working both in the nhs and in the private sector and uh, she particularly wanted to solve how she got bookings into her diary in the private sector and so we teamed up and started building hero our our product and hero was designed to give you that uber style experience of ordering a taxi or airbnb of booking an, an airbnb for the night and we, we thought, look, there's got to be scope to bring this to healthcare. And uh, by that, we meant that you'd land on a website of a practice, be that NHS or private, hit book now, and then you'd be sucked through the process. So you'd see your slots almost straight away. You'd pick your time. And as soon as you pick your time, you've got that reassurance of, I know I'm going to be seen. This is great. And then, of course, we'd authenticate you. And it would feed through into the underlying diary, be that EMIS or System 1 and that was in 2017 and i thought probably by 2020 i'd be retired done having you know completely transformed healthcare and um, and i'd be i'd be doing podcasts like this all the time but globally um, <laughs> and
0: saying this is how i did it yeah
1: exactly like you know follow follow me it's this easy um, <laughs> but uh, alas it's 2023 and um only now am i getting my big breaks at fame uh, on podcasts like these <laughs> but no uh, so we um, That business, Hero, we, we've grown. One element for another discussion is venture capital funding. And uh, we we chose to go down the path of not taking venture capital funding, which is a synonym for we didn't get any venture capital funding. <laughs> we and I uh, spoke to everyone. You know, we building tech in this country is incredibly expensive. So you've got two options. You either outsource, where you really take your life into your own hands, metaphorically speaking, because you just don't know who you're working with abroad. And there's a, there are many, many more bad stories than there are good stories of trying to find developers in Eastern Europe. There are good developers there, but just trying to find the good ones who aren't that expensive is nigh on impossible. And we thought as well that we were we wanted to build a business in Oxford, employing those in and around the Oxford area, such that they could come into work with a huge commute at 9am and leave at 6 and at 615 be beyond Port Meadow or in the parks in these beautiful open spaces in Oxford. Um, and so we felt we wanted to build the team here. And so we started that in 2019, um, bringing developers in-house and sort of learnt, learnt the hard way how tricky it is to integrate with the existing NHS tech. And NHS tech predominantly exists from the time that the world moved from paper to digital. So if you look into primary care, the likes of EMIS and System One, Those are systems that were built on the forced migration from paper notes to digital notes. But that was about 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, you're talking about systems that in their first incarnation are often 30 years old. You know, EMIS was in DOS. It still is in DOS in Scotland, uh, for any Scottish users. It only migrated from DOS to the colourful EMIS web sort of 13 years ago. And so interoperability with those systems, as you will know, is really challenging there's a very limited set of apis the apis are clunky they're really really hard to work with and so you know the first big challenge once you've had your idea is how do we join it up to be part of this wider ecosystem and the, the barriers to entry are really really high it's very hard to work with them we as i say we had uk developers but the costs of finding them were expensive um we might have been cheaper having gone abroad um and because of the cost that was why i was mentioning bc we had to go out and look for some external funding. There was no way we could build it ourselves. We ended up raising from angels who didn't necessarily need the billion-pound return that venture capitalists are looking for, and I can come on to why that's basically impossible to achieve in the NHR. And so we had this little bit of funding, and we started working on um, connecting to to EIMS, which was the first the first system we wanted to partner with. And we thought, right, you know, we have got six thousand practices. We'll connect to them, and quite quickly we'll be across the six thousand. it won't be a problem. Um, and the initial connection to Emis took us near enough a year and a half. <laughs> we had a team of seven. And you know, there'll probably be people out there listening going, Oh, well, you, you guys suck, you know, I did it take a year and a half? Certainly part of me thinks, oh what happened? You know, how did it take a year and a half? But it was just flipping hard. Like there were blockers on the EMIS side that they were and they remain a supportive partner of ours, but um just challenges in that business it's it, it too is squeezed by funding um uh, at, a, at a sort of uk like a national level it's not like yes they're making money but they get a, they get ten thousand pounds per site that emis has installed roughly speaking which might sound like a lot from first viewing but if you think of how heavyweight the likes of emis and system one are it's actually not very much money and if you compare that to the cost of systems elsewhere in other sectors it's nothing so emis they didn't and always necessarily um have the, the staff on their side to provide a good experience for us. The tech was really painful to work with for what we were wanting to do uh, because the APIs, which had been defined by the, um, the NHS themselves, didn't have all the calls we wanted. And the long and short of it was, it was only in mid twenty twenty one that we went live.
0: You went live in twenty twenty one. When did the company start?
1: Well, so no, I mean we were live with a non-integrated product in twenty eighteen. So yeah. we had a it was a full scheduling system and it had private practice elements for invoicing Um, that was in 2018 and then we used it we raised money in at the end of 2018 we were had a team in 2019 and it took a year and a half from then so it's mid 2020 uh, mid 2020 not mid 2021 so it's just after the first wave of covid in the summer of that year was when we were first able to push bookings from hero into the diary and extract availability from emits into hero
0: so for those that may be not part of primary care just so i'm clear so if i'm a patient and i want to book an appointment i go onto my practice website they'll have e they may have e consult so i'll go in and type everything then what happens i then what happens
1: there're two ways so you can either go through a triage be that e consult or any of the other providers out there um, although we quite like e consult uh, and e will be the e-consult will be submitted to the uh, practice. practice yep. will review it. And historically, what's happened is that the practice then has a task, an outbound task, to contact the patient to either say there's nothing particularly wrong with you, don't worry about it, come to one one like call one one one, go go to the A or come in. I mean, obviously, the bulk of them it, it's kind of come in. We need we need to arrange that phlebotomy um, yep. sample or whatever it is. Um one of the things you can do with Hero these days is you can write a text message to a patient with the link to book an appointment. So gotcha. instead of saying call up. But the, you know the reality is that although we've done we've gone heavily to a, con- a online consult world, calls are still the predominant method that patients are getting in touch with practice, unless you said as a practice we are solely con- e consult first. So I was in a practice the other day that had um, a forty five minute, this was at two pm. on Monday, so it was busy. Had a 45-minute call waiting time had at 2 p.m., it's an average sized practice, had had 345 calls and 180 of them had dropped off. And so, you know, like that's e-consult, yes, if you go down the e-consult pathway and then you can use hero to send a message to the link back. The idea is that then patient can confirms their identity with their first and they can pick a slot that suits them. And I think that was that was that is the underlying motivation for me with Hero was to focus on that patient experience. There's plenty of tech out there that's very focused on delivering good experiences for clinicians and emis at the heart of it, the likes of Acurex. But um, for better or for worse, we really wanted to prioritise patients um, to, to give them positive experiences of booking appointments. And for me as a patient anyway, I know that I feel much more reassured, not when I submit an e-consult and it says, we'll, we'll be back to you in 48 hours, but when I know that the appointment's in the diary and I'm, okay, I'm going to be seen this afternoon at four o'clock.
0: Why does it have to be clinicians first or patients first? Why can't it be both? Why can't the tech support both parties? Well, I, I mean the other way, I think it can. The other way of here at here at booking is a more classic online booking.
1: So um imagine that you're trying to book a hotel in the south of France uh, and you've got booking.com and you can see, oh, there's the window of time that I can book. Great, I'll part with my, my cash right now. And um, the the classic online booking that we delivered and the tool that we thought would would see big uptake was more more like that so you could embed booking on your website um, you hit book now and then patients are shown appointments and and then they, critically they're shown times before they log in because you know if you think about online booking that's been around for, for a decade in the NHS but it's normally behind the login barrier. So you've got to log in on the NHS app or patient access or one of these tools. No one ever does that. I mean, until COVID, to use any of them, you had to go in with your passport to a practice and register. I mean, I don't, I never get my passport out. I just was <laughs> never going to do that. Um, and so you can see in the data the uptake online booking was and it is really, really low. Um, and so we we wanted to build a system where you didn't have to log into these slots. And um, the premise was that it should work for both clinicians and for patients because the clinicians, they're just using EMIS. They don't need to sign into our system and administrators. They don't need to sign in. We're reading and writing to whatever their existing diary is. Um, so if there's a, a patient sorry, who calls up at 10 o'clock and says, I'm not coming in at ten 30 they can release that slot online and it will be booked. However, the reality that we've encountered is that, especially in regular primary care, that the reason that it's hard to balance patient-centric and clinician-centric is because of the mismatch between supply and demand in the system, there just isn't the volume of appointment. There aren't the volume of appointment slots that would allow for an effective online booking at this point in time for GP. Same isn't true for others.
0: So, how many GP practices use your product?
1: We're in 150 today, so we're we're still still pretty small, bit but we're we're you know making progress.
0: Is there truly a market for your product based on what you have just said in regards to there aren't, there aren't, there isn't enough appointments. So why would a practice invest in an online appointment booking system when they can't, they don't have the workforce to be able to provide the appointments?
1: Well, that's, that's a good question. And I think um, there are a couple of reasons. Our big focus these days tends to be more on how we can support both practices, but also PCNs or federations who are holding contracts for services. Either they're paid for completing, so anything Coaf, National Health checks, smear campaigns, that kind of thing, okay. um, or enhanced access. So those those are all kind of areas where actually you know you do want the bookings in your diary, and the same with the hours roles as well. So you know if you're sharing it. Uh, first contact physio across five sites, and you want to increase accessibility to that service, diverting demand from your GP's diaries into your first contact physio or into your pharmacist or into your social prescriber's diary. That diary can fit at a PCN level in a PCN hub instance of EMIS, and then we can book into that directly from the practice website. So we now are much more focused on the sort of cross organizational aspects of scheduling. But I will say that it's slightly to my disappointment because. I would love to crack a solution that works really well for regular GPs, but for the reasons that I've explained at the moment, with the pressure that the system's under, there just there isn't. The practices need to hold on to their GP diary slot so tightly, um, and know that they basically, certainly, they're operating under the, on the basis that they need to vet every appointment that goes into that clinician's diary. And um, although our online booking has controls that limits, a based on age or gender, who can book into an appointment. We, we're, not a, we're not a receptionist. We're not, we're not able to say, you know, please explain these conditions. So, you know, that's been a tough learning curve for us, um, but also it's partly a system problem more than anything else.
0: So you mentioned you haven't got VC funding slash weren't able to get VC funding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is there not something that... Do you not take pride in that? So many businesses it takes time to make a successful enduring sustainable business and the fact that you haven't got that funding is there not some pride in the fact that we're doing this by ourselves we've yes we've had angel in funding but you know like we're independent and i'm proud of that
1: oh completely now that i sit on the other side of the fence i'm being rejected by 125 <laughs> i'm thrilled about it no look the the reality is, is as i was explaining that the cost of development is really high, and I am a problem solver, that's what gets me out of bed. I love solving problems and delivering on great experiences for individuals, so that when I'm sitting around the table, people go, oh, I use that tool, it was absolutely amazing. And therefore, for me, when I'm solving problems, and tech is the way to do that, I want as much cash as I can get my hands on, because then I can build the best possible product. So why did I go to market? It was not because I believed in VCs, I certainly don't believe in their, their business model in general, um, because they all want billion-pound businesses and there just aren't that many. And um, it, there aren't that many in the world. And um, in the UK, it's very hard to export a healthcare business into Europe or into America because there's so much domain-specific knowledge. You're having to build a very bespoke system to enter the NHS and you can't do it in the private sector. The private sector market's not big enough in the UK. So do I really believe that you could return a billion-pound um, valued business in the UK? Well, the evidence will show you that the likes of EMIS and System One, which are really dominant, monopolistic, that shouldn't be repeated, their valuations are only just over a billion. I mean, EMIS sold for 1.25 billion. So I, I fundamentally think that the premise that VCs are operating under, is actually very hard to fulfill that as a startup pitching for money. I mean, when I, when I got deeper into the process and understood what they were looking for, It's clear that unless you think that you can scale into Europe or America, you're never going to be able to meet their expectations. And the downside, had we ever taken that funding, um, would have been that we'd have been up against it. We'd have been pushed by them to try and do something that we just didn't want to do. So now I wear it. Yes, I do I wear it as a badge of honour because we've got investors. A lot of them are clinicians as well, who are really invested in our journey and. Uh, except that we need to do it at our own pace and the pace of the NHS, which is not a seven-year fund time horizon. It can be longer than that. Um, and also, I am now able to sit here and shame businesses that have got to raise loads of money and then do things like give their products away for free to claim market share, but using VC funding to do that. You know, we don't do that because we're not able to. We've got sort of much smaller amounts from, um, from angels. And I think that honestly is more consistent with the primary care model. You've got thousands of small businesses in the form of primary care practices trying to make the economics work and not they're not they haven't got sort of someone on high throwing cash at them and we're in the same position as that you know we need the economics of our business to work and therefore i, I have a very honest conversation when we go to pitch our products around that it's not like that you know take it for free and and uh you know we'll we'll come at you with a bill in two years time we just don't operate like that
0: how do you motivate your team <laughs> Give it all the joys of working in the NHS.
1: Small business life is just it's just tough. Irrespective of whether you're building tech, I suspect it's the same as you're running a practice or a um you know or a podcast. Doesn't really matter what you're doing. As soon as you have team um, on payroll, uh, matters can get more complicated and um, motivation, inspiring individuals who are performing is is challenging and keeping them and retaining them is really hard. And even worse is when you have to deal with those who maybe aren't at the peak of their performance. And my overall kind of summary on on this this type of thing is that if your business is flying, HR is easy. If you're making loads of cash and there's so much buzz, then dealing with HR and performance and inspiring individuals is straightforward. Because everyone can see it and feel it there's a real buzz and yeah sure there might be a little bit of people saying i'm working a bit hard but if you see that j curve of adoption uh then then everyone's invested. where it becomes really tricky is maybe where you're not growing at the pace that you want to or hitting the targets you want to and and that is really challenging i don't think that there's anyone in my business anyway who and it's it's true also for those who've spoken to people are always inspired by what we're trying to achieve i think there's a Widespread acknowledgement in the UK about the backlogs and the access to care is hard. And fundamentally, we're trying to improve access to health for patients. We can't change the supply and demand imbalance, but we can change the 45-minute telephone call waiting list. And so I think our team are quite excited by that. And also we're we're quite small and nimble compared to a lot of the incumbents. So we we weren't Uh, I know in COVID there were elements that we're able to respond to like that but if we go to a a big client and say you know would you like to use Hero? they say we'd love to use it if we could put a gender restriction on appointments so that only women can book smears we go oh we could probably do that and like we'll just churn it out in in four weeks and that's very exciting and we've got a screen on our board uh, a screen pinned to our wall that shows the number of daily appointments I mean that's exciting we're not particularly obviously we want more points to be booked with with Hero but just sort of we're not like that invested in the individual appointments, but seeing them grow over time, the product get more used, it's hard not to be excited by that. Um, but as I say, the tougher times are where maybe you don't hit the targets you want or you lose a big contract or you get, you get a, a frustrated client email and you feel you've let them down. I wear those particularly hard myself. Um, but I think as a team, especially the senior team, we struggle.
0: Have you ever lost a client because they've not been happy with your product?
1: For a long time, our churn was... Really, really low. We, I mean, I've got a private practice of whom we have about 25 of 150. We've actually only ever lost one, and that was a mental health business that went to a more specific mental health practice, a uh, mental health product. In the NHS, um, I, I definitely think that on our journey, we've had times where we've got into practices, maybe not contracted, but under trial, and then they haven't ended up converting. And that can be a combination of factors, that can be cost, um, it could be that we've let them down. Or we got um, yeah we got pretty badly swiped by an incumbent product last year where they released a feature after us, but that was very similar to one of our features, and that really that hurt adoption. So we had uh, practices using us in the summer who come from September time stopped using us, so it was like ah oh, no.
0: And in those moments when that happens, how do you manage that? How do you deal with that internally? What's what's going through your mind? Do you think oh you win some you lose some, or are you thinking?
1: don't think you win some you lose some. <laughs> i'm i'm absolutely if that happens it doesn't it hasn't happened that much to be honest but with the bigger clients that we do sort of track their um happiness with the product and if like if we see that adoption is low or if we're struggling to get them activated i mean honestly activation is often the biggest the biggest challenge like we'll get bought at a regional level and then trying to get practice activated is incredibly tough and The alternative would be to go door to door to sell to practices. But then you don't have any scale and you can't really deliver a great service either. So you take a collection of practices, say 30 practices, we can often get in touch and activate 10 or 15 of them, or at least onboard them. 15, just don't even reply to the messages. They're like, oh, yeah, we heard that so-and-so bought this for us. Uh, We're quite busy at the moment. So, you know, we, we don't often, like in that case, we're going back to the economic buyer, the individual who's paid for the contract. And we're sort of saying, look, come on, put us in touch, put us in touch. I I'm now somewhat arms length from um, our day-to-day customer delivery. However, if there is a big contract that is on the line, I'm I'm sort of driving around the country trying to meet those individuals and be like, right, what can we do to persuade you? And you know, the job isn't interesting if we're just making cash. I don't want to just make cash. And the, Like, yeah, that's part of it. We want a return for our investors and a return for our efforts. But I want to see usage of the product. I want to see positive customer feedback, both from practices and for patients. That's the real motivation is people go. that was so much better than the alternative. And so where we've got contracts where we see funds coming in, but usage being really low. I'm like, oh, you know, that's not what we want. And that's when we start getting on the phones and visiting people face to face.
0: Someone to me, Ty, how do you, it'd be great if you could do like a masterclass on how you pitch to PCNs, primary care networks, so that's groups of general practices for those of you that don't live in that world. How do you pitch to PCNs succinctly? I'm a busy clinical director. You can come to one of our board meetings. You've got 10 minutes. Go.
1: Really, really hard. And I think what we find as well is that a lot of PCNs are still not optimized in the way they're operating i mean the way that you've just described come to our pcm board pitch for 10 minutes that's perfect i don't mind that that's a 10 minute window (laughs) the harder thing is like is there a board where you're discussing these things on a regular basis and you know then is there any chance we could pitch if we get to that point you know i sort of think no problem like we can do this part because from our from our perspective we've been going for five years so the tech that we offer is really good and established we're not like a new entrance to the market where we're not even sure if the tech is going to stand up because that's the first barrier you've got to get over is tech that actually works. Then there's the commercialization. Can
0: I just say, I think the first barrier is, are you hero health or health hero? I
1: know, I know. Oh my gosh.
0: Oh, I thought we. We Why did you call yourself? Like who came first? We came first
1: came first, and we were called Hero Doctor. And we changed to Hero Health. But the reason that we were called Hero was because I had a much-loved Labrador growing up that was called Hero. And I'm a huge cricket fan, and that Labrador was called Hero because... Hero Honda used to sponsor the Indian cricket, and I'd watch it. I'd go, Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to call our dog hero. I had the dog hero, and then it became the business. And we've often thought, Oh, we need to change the name a little bit, especially after Hero Health came, or Health Hero rather. I get it. Health Hero. <laughs> with, they, have, they have very, very deep pockets relative to us. But we haven't changed it yet. We probably would change it in a few years. But I don't think I'm alone in thinking our name is. It, are there are a few businesses in the space that have got legacy names, like Emis. I'm not sure Emis is the best name, and um, AccurX, so I know, at one point, because that's going to make um, prescriptions. They were looking at changing their name. But, yeah, no, that's the first thing. And, and then the, the kind of second thing that we'll get, I mean, if we can ever find a time to have a discussion with, with this board. thing is, a lot of the time, the discussions around tech and enhanced access will be actually outsourced to a federation to discuss. So it's about trying to find the right person at the federation will then be talking with the PCN and it's around helping them work through the contract and identify their needs. There seems to be this real split between some PCNs who are super, super proactive, and it's like a decent chunk now, super proactive, and know about all the requirements and, and are like they've reached out to us, um, compared to others where then we've had an introduction or, or we found them online, and they're not even aware of the online access requirement for PCNs, so, and yeah, there's much more of an introductory process. Um, or people saying oh can't we use this tool or that tool so for example many PCNs haven't yet got a separate clinical instance for their notes they'll just be let's say there's three practices that are constituent parts of the PCN they'll just be using one of those three practices for recording notes and managing the PCN diary for enhanced access and in that case we can work with them but more typically we're looking for where they've got a fourth instance of emails a sort of overflow instance for the PCN to use for enhanced access on the R's roles, but I mean often just explaining that and kind of trying to wrap your head around it I'm sure there are people listening going I have no idea what you just talked about like explaining that is quite challenging.
0: Well I think I suppose in my experience there's a way to do it in regards to so going back to the initial question like how to pitch to PCNs it's that you probably don't want to go into a board meeting cold because for, for what you've just said so it's like you've had a good conversation with your clinical director or the PCN manager or now your digital transformation lead. So you kind of make the approach, but not salesy. So you have the conversation. Then you send, you know, like your PowerPoint deck, then you go to the, and then you make sure that person has circulated that PowerPoint deck. And it's like, who are they? What does the product do? What is the problem trying to solve? And how much is it going to cost? So I we I don't like it when it's like, you know, let me come in, let me come into your house. I'm not gonna tell you how much it's gonna cost. It depends. Like just tell like there must be you must have some idea how much it's going to cost because if it we just need to know, like, can we afford it or not? So that information, the beginning is really, really helpful. It's like no secrets. And then you go to the board, and then what will typically happen is you'll hear site, you'll either hear loads of questions, and your 10 minutes will turn into an hour, and you're thinking, Great engagement! Uh, I'm thinking, Oh, we haven't got through it, like all the other stuff that we need to discuss, but this is good, or you'll hear crickets, and no one will say anything, and then you'll be like, Oh, okay, bye, Tara email me so then behind the scenes you've got your PCN manager CD going what do you think what do you think do we have a trial and then it's like it takes ages it takes ages like yes no yes mm, not sure yes no and then you'll say look Tara yes or no and then you'll get your yes or no but that 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 lead time takes quite a while unless you are bloody brilliant and they go sign me up On the day, but that that period of will they or won't they? And behind the scenes, we're probably thinking: Can we truly is can we afford this sustainably? Is it better than what we've already? Is it truly better than what we've already got? Do we trust the salesperson? Do we trust the company that they are going to deliver? And how big a priority is this? Because there's lots of things that primary care networks need to do and sometimes it's hard for the primary care net we're competing with day-to-day life in practice so there's lots of considerations that go around whether we're gonna go with a company or not and it's, it's just not personal it really no. you know it's just not personal at all.
1: And I mean, that that sales cycle, no matter what the level, be, you know, GP, PCM or Federation or ICB is just savage for small businesses because, you know, you're living on tender hooks really and you're not sure whether to follow up and, you know, chase and be like, you know, what's your decision or just sort of stay quiet and not irritate them. It's really, it's tough.
0: I would um, say, someone said to me, the the fortune is in the follow-up. And sometimes, and I'm guilty of this myself, I don't follow up through fear that I'm bugging people. But then when I do follow up and we kind of win the business, I'll be like, oh I was I was tara, I was meant to get around to messaging you and I just forgot or I saw you online and it was a reminder. So sometimes you you do need to follow up because primary care networks are extremely busy. You know, like the unless it's urgent, you do need to follow up, but do so in a way, but it's a, and I hate to use this phrase but it's all about relationships you know it really is and there is a way to you mentioned Holly Health before I was like I know the guys at Holly Health I've seen Grace they work with one of our networks I probably do need to message them you know like there's nothing wrong you know like sometimes you just need a reminder but if you've got the relationship and it's taking the time to say like hi Tara how you doing you know like what you're up to it's those things versus have you made a decision you know like you just bombarded there is a way to follow up and the thing is it's a small world and primary care networks I say we're not it's not a competitive environment and more often than not we'll say do you know what we're not interested but I'll mention you to another network
1: yeah no and I mean I think that's right when it's working well that's how it works the challenges for tech companies because also i'm sure that you've got pitching to you a lot of service businesses saying "Well, will we'll provide like an overflow um, pharmacy service or where the contract sizes will be much bigger the the reality is is that for a pcn contract for a business like ours the actual contract value over one year will probably be under five thousand pounds and you know it, it depends i mean whether you're rolling out to all of the sites within the pcn or just one pcn hub site and Problem is that really if the contract value says two thousand pounds, they're so deflated. We're say twenty, yeah, two thousand pounds or two thousand five hundred pounds. We can't devote that level of time to every PCN pitching conversation because it's just there's just not enough hours in the day. And you know they'll say there's a there's an anecdote that suggests that if a contract value is under five thousand pounds, it should be product-led. You know it should be more like the accurate model where individuals go to your website and start using your product and then pay. And that's been one of the challenges for us is. Which way around do you do this? Do you go through the sort of proper process? And it's quite a long-winded process of pitching, hopefully winning the work, then the compliance, then hopefully a test site out of the PCN, and then maybe a full rollout. And, and only in those last phases will you show the value of the product beyond just the pitch, you'll just be sure it takes you that long. And this is for, you know, a couple of thousand pounds. Or do you flip it and you try and go, right, just use the product. Like Let's not go through a full procurement process. Let us demonstrate the value. This is how much it's going to cost as a per patient fee. If it works for you, then you can be onboarded. And the the reality is, is that a lot of the PCMs are buying in the kind of the formal way where you're going through this process before you use it. And that's what they want, that's what they're used to. People feel that Accurates have pulled the wool over their eyes. We've had people say, I don't want your free trial because I know that in a year or two, I'm going to have this product that I love that I can't use because it's too expensive. So they don't want the free trial. But then the problem is if we go through the procurement route, it's only right at the end that they're trying to use it. So we end up with some contracts where people go, oh, like we bought it, we've got the money coming in, but the usage isn't at the level that we want. I mean, for me, it's very dissatisfying. So, and, and that's the, the challenge. Like and if the contract value was over £10,000 per PCM, it wouldn't be so bad, but we're very, the price point for tech is often much more deflated than that.
0: That's really helpful. Yeah, I didn't think about that
1: This comes back to the original statement that you read out when we started, which is you can't have the impact you want to have. I mean, if you like, let me sort of try and bring this to life, but not doing our PCNs. If you are an online consultation provider, the average fee you will achieve at a practice level will be about 20p per patient. And the average number of patients at a practice is just under 10,000 patients. So you're getting 20p a patient for 10,000 patients. That's £2,000 a year. So let's say you do incredibly well and you're across a thousand sites. So it's over over 15% market share, which in any other market you'd be like, you might have a dominant player at 30%, but 15% is very incredible. So you've got a thousand sites paying you 2000 pounds. That's 2 million pounds a year. That's a smaller budget than, the, than one GP practice, just about. It's like a it's a really limited amount of cash. And so it might sound like a lot oh, 2 million pounds. Once you start paying a number of developers just to keep the lights on on the platform, forget R&D and innovation, then you've got a thousand practices. You can imagine how many emails you're getting every day about something that doesn't work. So you need a relatively big customer success team. You need someone to have those conversations that you and I were just talking about and build relationships, probably two people doing that. You need someone on compliance because you're going to need to do ISO 27001 and the DSP toolkit. And then you probably need a director or someone like me who needs to live as well. And... Whilst you might be able to get that business to just about wash its face on two million pounds a year, like with everyone getting a, a decent income, you're not going to have any money for RMD. You're not going to be able to improve that, add any kind of AI, create a brilliant new experience. It just isn't possible. Um, so that's why I think there's this often this disconnect between those who are buying on the PCM side or a practice side and those on the tech side. They're like, why doesn't why isn't this better? And you think, hang on. We're coming to you. We're probably going to do a peak in a big practice. We might be doing two or three thousand appointment bookings a month, and we're we're taking for that about one hundred and seventy five pounds. And I mean, but can
0: I, I just say, is if have you got the right pricing model?
1: Well, have we or has the industry? Because everyone's priced at about twenty p per patient. There isn't really any way you can go other than that. The okay. EPRs are at about a pound twenty. You know, accuracy is at seventy p if you take everything joined up. I mean. People are weighing you up against the competition and there are some VC funded sort of price points that you see, like they seem to be the ones you have to try and match.
0: Do you think if you knew what you know now, would you have set up Hero Health?
1: Well, I love what I do and get a buzz out of it, even if it's in one practice. But to my point on that post, you can't build like, a VC backable business in UK primary care. No way. I mean, not even close. Like accurate have crushed it, 95% adoption. And you know, it doesn't, you can look at their fees online, but even then, they're like they're at full penetration in primary care, and their turnover is probably between 15 and 20 million. That's not a billion pound business. You then need, they then need to crack secondary care or they need to crack an international market. So it's if you, if you want to build a VC back business, no, I don't think it's achievable. Would I do it all again? Um, well, put it this way if someone comes to me with an idea for primary care tech these days, I do try and make sure that they've got all the information at hand about how hard it is. I'm not saying I'd put them off necessarily, but like, I guess. Uh, I
0: mean, I think you are putting Pete, I can't imagine that this isn't an inspiring. <laughs> conversation
1: uh, yeah. i mean i definitely wouldn't invest in a business in this space no way i'm i mean i would not even consider it you'd be mad to you i mean it, you'd be totally bonkers to invest in a business in primary care because there's just you've got people who are cross at you for not delivering good enough tech for two grand a year when a receptionist salary is 35,000, you'd be better off offering a receptionist locum service, which doesn't need any tech, you'd make far more cash. Like if you're motivated <laughs> by money, if you're motivated yeah. by making a difference and having, you know, like get, getting a sort of, out kind of what you do, then maybe maybe have a go at it. Like, I mean, as I say, I love what I do. But I saw a deck not that long ago that was wanting to do something for medications in primary care about like helping patients stay on the appropriate medication. And they were reckoning that they could take a percentage of the medication saving. And they were thinking they got about 35,000 to practice. I was just like, there's just no way. Like you really, really will not do that. It's just not going to happen. The practice won't let you do it. And yeah, I think the the bit that probably makes it really tough for me is that, and maybe this is because our product isn't what everyone wants, but the amount of hostility that we get from doctors or partners it's really unsavoury. Like we've we've got, as I say, 150 sites. We've got a really limited footprint in Oxfordshire that we're based. We, we'd bet, you know, we have a handful of practices, and our most local practices have been some of the most unfriendly on our journey. So we wanted to go in and said, so we said, look, can we can we just stand behind the appointment desk and see how appointments flow into the diary and see if there's any opportunity to save any time here. And they said, no, they we were really busy. This was a year and a half ago. And then, you know, every six, three to six months, I'd get a message and get in touch. And recently I messaged them. Um, I said, look, is there any chance that we could, you know, come in and do a trial and be behind the front desk? And they said, no. And I said, look, can we have some feedback on this? Because I, I would really help us to have local practices. One's a couple of hundred meters from our door. And they, um, they wrote back and said, we, I've been I've been a partner for 21 years and I've seen countless businesses like yours come and go. We know you're going to slow down our EMIS instance. We're going to have to do training. The answers are no. And there was more to it than even that. But that that's when you're like, right, so I'm not going to make much money here and I'm not able to have the impact that I want. And that that part, those sort of conversations are really deflating. I'm like, what are we doing here?
0: What are you doing here, Ben?
1: What am I doing? Well, we have a private GP business and yep. a private sector business that does does reasonably well. And as a business, we just about wash our face anyway. And for those practices that like us, and particularly that, that PCN model where you need a cross-organisational booking solution, we're adding a lot of value. And I think that just needs to be better conveyed. And the onus is on us to convey that better to the likes of this partner. But you know, it is very, it's very tricky because how do you you know if you can't even get a foot in the door to try and demonstrate your value or even just to see the problems that exist such that you can try and solve them it's what do you do like for this partner i i wrote back to him and said how do you expect tech providers to deliver you good tech if we can't work with you if we can't be close to you to understand the problems it's just not possible and i've made the same point on funding how can you expect there to be good tech solutions in the nhs if the way we're funded doesn't allow any room for R&D. What, what it means is you end up with privately backed businesses. and um, That itself is controversial. There are, there's a whole group on Twitter who think that the government should be building their own health record rather than, than being privately held by Emerson System 1. And I'm like, yeah, but we can't even fund middleware products like Hero or EconSol or Accurate sufficiently well to allow them to do R&D like there's no way that we could build something much more sophisticated like a record system so you know what are we doing well i mean there are times where i will wake up and ask that question but basically we're still on the same journey to try and delight patients in the way that they access care and by the way to save practices money by automating their scheduling
0: would you say that you know like are you an entrepreneur if it's not hero health you will you will create another business you will always run your own business
1: yeah i think so i'm not sure i'm very good at answering to other people i think, <laughs> I I think if it's not here it'll probably yeah it'll be it'll, it'll likely be another another um entrepreneurial venture I, or i think put into some kind of entrepreneurial capacity in a in a larger business where i've got freedom to try and innovate and, and solve problems and disrupt the status quo uh, that that's sort of what i enjoy doing and I think I do relatively
0: well what would be your number one piece of advice for somebody listening to this thinking I am going to prove Gus wrong and I am going to build the best bloody online booking system by weekend that he's ever seen what would be your number one piece of advice to that person
1: well I definitely say don't build an online booking welcome (laughs) to but the best one we actually have built a really really good online booking solution so don't build that build something else i would say pick up the phone to me and (laughs) let me at least consult let me at least tell you i don't want any money but let me at least share my war stories so you know what you're getting yourself into and before you do it and maybe look at other places where you can have a big impact like why do nhs primary care why why not do dentistry or physio or mental health i think mental health is a huge opportunity mental health systems are really lacking or pick off a niche in the nhs where tech is completely um, underinvested in like out of hours and it's not as competitive either um you know emus have 150 partner products it's, it's a quite a competitive space and you've got to work with their old api so i, I talk about those things and i'd say you know is there nothing else that no other sort of itches for you to scratch. Could you not go work in fintech or real estate tech or legal tech where, you know, one contract for £10,000 would probably be mid-level in, in those environments, whereas in NHS Primary Care, you'd be lucky to get in you know, an individual contract with a practice of 2000 Gus, thank you
0: so much. If any of you do not follow Gus on LinkedIn, honestly, you should be, you have like LinkedIn creators. You should be one. Well,
1: look, it's very kind of you to not me should. Also, yeah. I, I did. I said to you, I would be honest about my experiences. I didn't want to. I don't want to hide anything. I, I, also, at risk of being too negative, you know. As I say, we do do tens of thousands of bookings a week in the NHS, and then we do get great feedback on it. But I'm five years in, and it's been incredibly hard work. And I can't, I can't dress that up in any other way. It's not a case of oh, I founded my business in 2021, and look where we are today. You know, we started building this in 2017. I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of the space. It's it's been a slow burner, and it it is hard work. You can look at any of the winners in the space. Accurate COVID was fortuitous for them. Econsult similar, and you know you need breaks and lucky breaks, and that's partly the result of effort, but it's also partly just chance. And I'm not saying that we haven't had those. We've had lucky breaks as well. But just when you're starting out, it's worth being aware that it's a really really tricky environment. So, uh, but good luck to the aspiring entrepreneurs out there. I, you know, I, I want them to do well. It's it, The NHS needs businesses like mine and like the others, because for those that want tech, um, you know, that, and which there are a number of, they're not all like the GPR we speaking of, they, they're looking for solutions like ours, so And when they find them, we get people saying, gosh, I wish I'd known about Hero earlier. And I'm like, yes, come on, come on, it's a win. So, and they do exist.
0: I just want to really thank you I think I always think like what makes a good podcast and I think that it's somebody that has the freedom to speak because the higher you go sometimes people are more guarded and I don't want this podcast to just people come on and go look at me aren't I amazing and you know my biggest weakness is that I work too hard and I don't say no like I want people to be really honest and usually the conversation that we've just had which is recorded takes place once I've stopped recording you I could do a podcast you know like after hours where as soon as I press record they go then all the truth really (laughs) comes out so I really 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 do appreciate it um I think it's important to share it's not all about and ultimately you are successful. And I think what take what the ingredients to become successful is to navigate the highs and lows. Nobody in this space, no matter what, whether you're in healthcare or not, if you've been going for more than a couple of years, you have got tremendous, it's like dog years, you know, like tremendous experience.
1: Uh, And and you need to stay in the race to win. I think that is like the longevity has given us a really good understanding of the industry. Um, And it builds relationships. Like you say, you look at, Look at these businesses that are winning in the middleware space. Econsult, 2014, I think that was founded. Accurex was doing for two years prior to the messaging solution, a signature, uh, they were doing a, a prescription solution. Like These businesses don't get built in a day. So yeah. everyone coming into the space, you know, you need to assume, put a five-year time horizon on it. If people want to
0: connect with you, where is the best platform?
1: linkedin is is good um i rarely go onto twitter because i always get sandwiched on there so- <laughs> uh,
0: thank you so much and hopefully by the time this comes out you would have had your new baby
1: uh, yes exactly yeah i've got number one on the way in not too long so um my my wife will be firmly slapping my hand saying get off linkedin so I'm happy <laughs> that, that month. But, yeah looking forward to connecting with some of the listeners
0: thank you so much I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram at THC Primary Care, and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools, and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on Join the Newsletter. Letter in the show notes, and I will see you in the next episode.